Hello and welcome to the Brew Time Podcast. This is all about doing content differently. It's season two and I'm your host, Fiona. And this week, I am having a brew and a chat with Matali De Pekesa. She is a best-selling author and book writing coach. Now, this episode is brought to you by The Happy Tea Company, which is a sustainable vegan tea that is grown in the Worcestershire countryside and is brewed today in my teapot. Now, this week, Matali pretty much convinces me that a book is one of the best pieces of content that you can invest in for your business. Even if you've not considered writing a book before, I reckon she might just change your mind on this. Have a listen and let me know whether you've been inspired to get writing as a result of this episode. And if you are thinking about your content for next year and considering including a book in that, I've got a quick content strategy checklist that you can download. I'll put a link in the show notes, but you can grab it there. And for now, grab your brew, settle in and have a listen to what Matali has to say. Oh, I'm good. I'm I'm looking forward to a a more relaxed week. Last week, one of my um, students published a book on Thursday and it became a bestseller in the UK. So I'm like really pleased for her. But as you can imagine, the last week is all hands on deck, making sure everything is right. Yeah, it was just it always is that, you know, the, the week leading up to one of my students publishing their books is just a little bit crazy um so yeah last week I didn't get a huge amount of sleep so I'm looking forward to a more relaxing week (laughs) that sounds so exciting though like oh god on I swear uh, I swear to god Fiona I honestly thought because my book came out in March and it became a bestseller and I genuinely thought you can't beat that feeling but now every single time one of my students become a bestseller it tops that feeling that I felt I feel like a proud mother, even though a lot of the times they're older than me, but I do feel like, do you know what I mean? It, it's, it means even more to know that you've, I didn't think it would. I think it's also because I think if you, you know, if you have children, you're aware of that feeling of, but I don't, I don't have children. So I don't know how that feels. So now it's like, you know, seeing these people that I've nurtured, not as a child, but in, in a, in a fashion nurtured them um, from becoming completely clueless about, how they'd even go about writing a book to actually then publishing a book and then it becomes a bestseller as well. I mean, it's even better than me becoming a bestseller. I love it. <laughs> it's worth all the work. You make it sound like you've got the best job in the world. You take people from like knowing nothing to becoming it a bestseller. It is the best job. I mean, I'm not going to, I'm not going to lie. There are parts of it that I would, if there was a way of getting rid of them, you know, I'm very, I'm painstaking when it comes to, the consistency of a book and you know one of the key issues that amateur authors have is they have no consistency so for example in one part of the book they're using the word two t-double-o in another part of the book they're using the number two and it's all like think about a book that comes from harper hollands or you know penguin random house or simon and schuster they wouldn't dream of publishing a book that had inconsistencies there's got to be there's got to be consistencies regarding language regarding numbers even the spacing if you have bullets on in one chapter and you have bullets in another chapter and the spacing is different would never happen in a professionally published book so I'm quite a stickler for that because my uh, my USP is you get the best of both worlds you have the control and power of self-publishing and not having somebody else telling you what to do but you, your finished product is as good as anything that comes from Penguin 
or HarperCollins or Simon Schuster or Macmillan's or any of the big publishers. So you get them the best of both worlds. But it just means I have my work cut out then to make sure everything is. Because, <laughs> yeah, because a lot of people are like, well, that can't be difficult. I was like, yes, have you ever... Have you ever like looked at what fifty to sixty thousand words look like in a document? You're like, oh, so exactly. Unless you've done a PhD or something like that, you can't even imagine how much, how many words that is, and then to make sure everything is consistent all the way mm-hmm. through. But yeah, it's one of those things. But yeah, it's fun. <laughs> there's there's more good than there is bad. <laughs> oh, I, I would want to do it. I mean, like, you're amazing, like, sitting and looking through other people's, like, 50,000 words of, yeah. yeah that, I, I get to know my students' books really, really well. I get to know, that. I get to a stage where, you know, I I could even do interviews on their books. Young people are like, oh, that's in chapter five, <laughs> you know. And I just literally can say what is in which chapter because by the time I've gone through it, and I've gone through it several times, um, I, you know, I know it like that old saying the back of your hand you know I kind of know it so yeah it's good like I said it's it's exciting I really really enjoy it excellent how does that compare to the process of doing your own book though how how does doing so how does taking someone else through the process differ from you going through the process (laughs) Uh, well it differs if they don't listen to you <laughs> and it happens. I would say 50% of my students are brilliant. They really do trust the process. And then you obviously, all coaches and consultants will experience this. They'll always have a percentage of students who, for some reason, decide they know better. And you, you do sort of sometimes think, why did you hire me then? If you're just going to do it anyway, then you could have just saved yourself the bother and the money and just did it your way anyway. So, yeah, I do have clients who do things out of sync. I've created a process that I really do believe is the easiest process probably in the world for getting a book out of you, a nonfiction book. I don't know how to write fiction, so I couldn't, I couldn't help anybody with that. But when it comes to nonfiction, I believe I've created the easiest process, but it only works if you follow it in the right steps. I call it a recipe because I always, I try to get people to understand because when I say step-by-step, step, there's still those people who think they can do the steps out of sync. And I'm like, well, would you do that in a recipe? If you got a, a cookbook out, would you go, I think I'll do step four first, then I'll do one. Then you wouldn't. You'll end up with this unedible mess at the end of it. So I use the word recipe a lot to really get people to think that this is like a recipe. And if you don't do step one, step two, step three, step four, in the way that I've laid it out, A, even if you do manage to get to the end of it, it's going to be a mess. And B, you might not even get to the end of it. And you end up having so much more extra work. I had one student who I told her she needed to do one final check of a manuscript. It had been checked for consistencies and typing errors that had been all done. I just wanted her to check regarding content, whether everything was in the right place, in the right sequence of learning that she wanted to, to do. Because I explained to her that once it goes to the typesetter, typesetters are happy to do as many edits as you like when it comes to design. So if they, for example, created a call-out box that you just hate. You say, oh, I don't like that call-out box. It's the corners are too sharp. Can I have more rounded corners? They will do 
10 edits to make you happy with your call out boxes, with the way your quotes were, the way everything looks. Because that's their job to make sure that you're happy as the author with the layout of your book. What they won't do is start changing the content because by the time it gets them, that should be the final, this is it. It's been edited, whether you've done the editing yourself or whether you've got a professional editor in, you got someone like me to look through it. It should have all have been done before it goes to the typeset. If you're asking them to change content, they'll charge you more, which is what they should do. Guess what? Big, big bits. So she decided there was a big section of chapter one that really needed to go into chapter five. And I was like, oh my God. It's like, why did you? I, I, it's in, I, I even have a video step-by-step program that shows them what to do. Plus they get weekly coaching with me. So it's like, you literally can't go wrong. It happens. So that is the difference. Sometimes it can be frustrating uh, because I know my process works. I've written eight books now, seven as a ghostwriter, one as an author. The first book took me 18 months to write. Actually, I think it might be longer. I think it might have been 20 months. And then the seventh book, which is the last one as a ghostwriter, and then my book as an author, took uh, less than six weeks. It's five to six weeks because of my process that I'd built up. So when people mess around with the process, I feel like my, my inner Gordon Ramsay comes out. You know how he has this, um, he has this saying, doesn't he? Don't muck about with the recipe. I feel like saying, don't muck about with the recipe. It's there for you. Just do it and you're going to be fine. So yeah, there's that. There's the difference when you're teaching it to somebody else. You're hoping that they trust the process. Um, and something else I've learned uh, that's quite interesting is learning how to phrase things. Like, for example, I've just used that example, recipe. That came about because I was having problems with some clients who just weren't following. So I thought, well, how do I get them to understand? And I realized analogies work really, really well with a lot of people. So yeah, that's where I started to use the analogy of cooking and you just wouldn't, you'd follow the steps. You wouldn't just do any steps in whatever sequence you wanted because then it wouldn't work. So, yeah, it's it's interesting. And, you know, some people are pleasures. Some people are rather stick pins in my eyes. But, you know, what can you do? Like you, you take the rough with the smooth. Every coach will say that. They will get students. But it is getting better. I've noticed that as my business grows, um, I'm becoming more settled as a coach. I'm becoming better at communicating to prospects what I expect of them. I'm becoming more harsh in a nice way. I know that sounds weird, but I'm kind of telling them up front, this is a recipe. If you, if you want to do this all, you know, you get some people who so are like, oh, I just want to journal and it'll just wonderfully turn into a book. Yes, there are coaches for that. Go and find them. I'm not your coach. I'm the coach that gets the job done. If you want a book that's going to raise your visibility, it's going to take your business to the next level, it's going to get get you booked for speaking gigs and podcasts and that kind of thing. If you want a book that's going to market you and your business and you need to get it done, I'm the coach for it. If you want to be all you know, very flowery and I'm just sort of doing it for a cathartic reason, which all my students are, they do do it, you know, they they do put a lot of themselves into it, but it's done with a specific goal in mind because that's, that was why I got into working with vegan ethical and sustainable entrepreneurs because I just realized that even though we are heading in a more vegan world, you know, you're seeing more vegan foods, the, 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 
business owners that tend to be doing well they're not vegans like the owner of Oatly is not even vegan and it just kind of made me think that's a bit that's a shame because like we're on the precipice right now of really in the next 10 years the world becoming vegan mainstream and yet it almost seems like the people who are going to push that forward are not even vegan themselves because a lot of vegan and ethical and sustainable entrepreneurs just don't know how to get that visibility and awareness of their products and services and that kind of thing. So that's that was my goal to give these people a platform. So then they get onto podcasts like this, they get onto you know summits, they get on stages, and more people know about them, know what their message is, and want to buy their products and services. So then they can do more good in the world. Um, so yeah, I'm getting better at, at communicating that so people are aware that yes, you do have creative license, it is your book, but you need to stick within the recipe because I know what works. So a couple of things have come out of that. First of all, you've just described why I'm rubbish at baking and cooking because I am the person. <laughs> you do like, this thing. Oh, I'm like, oh, I don't want to do this stuff. I'll come back to that. I'll do that at the end. That'll be fine. So that that's why my food is rubbish. Thank you for that one. <laughs> Secondly, and when I was like crawling through all, all your um, content, I put, I don't know if you saw the questions that I sent you last night, but I put in the, yes. is, the is this for you page. I was like, this is amazing. I loved it. <laughs> I, I, I created that because I was just getting people. So like, oh, I'm thinking of, uh, and, and I'm, I'm all for people writing it because you want to leave a legacy that's absolutely i'm not saying that isn't important in fact i would say that's the most important thing that's why i work with vegan ethical sustainable entrepreneurs because they are the entrepreneurs who absolutely have a mission beyond making profit you know otherwise they wouldn't be vegan who's vegan for us it'd be easy if we weren't let's be honest so we're not vegan for us we're vegan because for the animals for the environment for our health because we want to stay happy and healthy for our family it's not for us so, you know, I think it is important that people put a lot of themselves into their books because otherwise you've now got a university textbook. No one wants to read that. You know, people want to know about you. They want to know about your mission, your message, what you, you know, how you show up in the world. And that all needs to go into your book. However, there are also people who go too far into that and it becomes, dare I say it, self-indulgent. And that, rarely translates to people leaving five-star reviews on Amazon because of your book, because people see that a mile off. And you have to understand that most people pick up a nonfiction book because they're wanting to see some sort of result. They want to change their way of thinking or the way they do something. They want to improve something or bring a new dimension into their life. There's an element of personal growth happening. And if your book is really just all about you and your self-indulgence and you're not helping that person feel transformed at the end of your book, you're not going to get a, a great reception from people. And I see, you know, loads of reviews, even quite famous books. Um, and I, I'm one for reading the reviews. And it's interesting to see, you know, what a lot of people say it's like, yeah, it was good, but it could have been done in 50 pages. It didn't need to go on for 250 it was just, you know, the, the author talking about themselves and you got to put yourself into it, but sparingly, you know, just explaining who you are and what you do 
Yeah, and that's why I, that that's why I created that page to because most people, you know, I've seen other websites and they'll put, you know, I need people to be like A, B, C, and thought, what if I made a, a page that said who I don't want you to be? Um, and I thought that my and it has it does work. I, I'm pretty sure it's um, it's pushed away some people who just thought, yeah, that's not going to work for me. I need a more kind of you know, like a gentler approach with someone who, and you do, you get book coaches who will charge you a monthly fee and it's ongoing and you just, they just almost like a sounding board for your book and you can go on a much longer process with them. Um, but that's not the kind of book coach I wanted to be. I, I've, I'm on a mission. I want to help as many vegan, ethical and sustainable entrepreneurs become published authors. So that way their visibility is raised because they're everywhere. I want to get to a stage where I can't even move. Like I go to a summit. It's not even a vegan summit. And there's vegan authors who are on stage talking about it. I want to like, you know, go to, you know, iTunes and on not even, never mind vegan podcasts on just entrepreneurial podcasts. There's these vegans everywhere representing what we stand for. I mean, imagine that world. It's just going to get to a stage where the meat eaters are going to be in the minority. You know, it's going to be like this weird, archaic thing that people do it's going to go like the i will say like i i really believe that um eating meat is goes hand in hand with all the isms that we're tr- still trying to get rid of racism sexism and um, homophobia you know, or you know um, anti transgender it all comes back to the same thing which is reducing a living thing whether that's human or animal into an object where as soon as you believe that that isn't an object and it's actually a being that has feelings and emotions and dreams uh, and feels pain, then suddenly you're stopped in your tracks and thinking, I don't really want to do this now. This this doesn't feel right. I want to talk about some vegan leadership here. As well as you, I do want to get on to like where you're from because you made me chuckle when you first sent me. Do we do that first? Because you made me chuckle when you first sent me that LinkedIn message and I'm like, do I detect a Northern accent? I can't quite <laughs> place it. Where, where are you from? Because I know you've moved around quite a bit. So I want to know where you're from. I'm, I'm back to my hometown of Gateshead. So um, Gateshead's a, a couple of miles um, south of Newcastle-upon-Tyne in the northeast of England. But I have lived, I went to, my dad put me into a private school at the age of 11. Um, and they kind of took one look at me and went, yes, you're not speaking like this. <laughs> so, so from the age of 11, you know, my accent started to change drastically. Um, then I moved to Manchester and I was in Manchester for nearly 10 years. I moved to Thailand for a while as well. So then it was really interesting because I got adopted by this huge group of South Africans. So then I uh, started to pick up sign up. <laughs> Who would have thought? Yeah, I didn't like any of the Brits there. I really, really had, I had a problem with the Brits in Phuket. They were just... Um, I don't know, people who were nobodies in, in England who were trying to be somebodies over there and mainly, you know, thinking they can be because of the exchange rate meant that they were reasonably well off now in, in Phuket. But, you know, I could see past the BS and I was like, you are a nobody still from England in my eyes. Remember that? So they were just people that I didn't like. Um, the You know, the worst, the stereotype, the worst stereotype of expats who yeah. are the kind of, go to another country but then expect everything to be it's little England basically so I just did not get on with them whatsoever so um I ended up becoming a bit of a loner and then I became adopted by you know this group of South Africans who just took me 
And then I ended up learning so much about South Africa. And that was an interesting, um, interesting dynamic because, first of all, South Africans are huge meat eaters, um, big, big meat eaters, um, which kind of clashed with me a little bit. One of my best friend's boyfriend is actually a hunter, not a trophy hunter, Mm. but a hunter. So he hunted deer. But again, it it was really good because... we were able to have civilized conversation. And I actually found out that, you know, although I'm still against hunting, as I said, we're now moved past the point of needing meat. But if you are going to eat meat, I would much rather it was meat that was hunted rather than farmed. At least that that animal had a life and got on with its life and then got hunted. I mean, animals do hunt other animals, you know, so it is nature at play. What we're doing to animals is nothing natural whatsoever. <laughs> even organic farming, even when people say, oh, but what about organic farming? It's like, just farming in general is not natural. That's, you know, just breeding something to kill it is not natural. It's meant to be out there living its life. And if it's unfortunate enough to get in your way because you want to eat it, fair enough. But it shouldn't, it's not natural, you know? Um, even, I mean, I, I, as you see, you just saw my cat. I love cats, but I'm a big believer that cats shouldn't even be in this country. That's why they're decimating our wildlife. They shouldn't be here. So I would love it. If, first of all, it was illegal to breed any more cats. And secondly, we just, all of us, take all the ones that are in the rescue shelters, give them a great life, and then they die out, and then it's done. Then there shouldn't be any cats in the UK because it's, they're not indigenous to this country. And... I really struggle with my cat. You know, I don't mind when she brings in mice. That is, you know, their ancestral food. But when she brings in birds, it breaks my heart a little bit because that bird didn't deserve it. You know, that bird is indigenous to this country. My cat isn't. Yeah. She is a rescue. I would never go to a breeder <laughs> over my dead body when I go to a breeder. Um, but yeah, you know, we, we've got to think in terms of working with nature instead of working against it, which is what we've been doing for far too long absolutely we have yeah i want to know which vegan leader you would like to hear a book from that you've not read so far seen so far if you could pick one vegan leader gosh um hmm the thing is most of the vegan leaders have written a book and that's why they're leaders i mean that's that's kind of plays into why i became a book coach within this sector um it's because that's how you get visibility you know i've seen people who are were business owners and then they they turn into business leaders because they become an author so yeah i'm just trying to think who hasn't written a book yet i'm trying to think of anyone and i would say within my sphere people that i've met recently there's definitely a lady that you might be aware of stephanie red cross west who I think is fascinating. She um, has a business where she helps vegan entrepreneurs, coaches vegan entrepreneurs on how to build their business. And she's been doing it since 2009, which is what fascinates me. Because, I mean, 2009, I'm in my 40s, so 2009 feels like yesterday. (laughs) However, (laughs) 2009 was a time I became vegan in 2012. I remember finding it difficult back then. You know, I would sometimes you know, I'd be away from home and I'd be hungry and I won't be able to find anything to eat. I specifically remember this is when I was going to collect my Thai cat um, uh, from Charles de Gaulle Airport. 
So a friend of mine and I, we'd uh, travelled, we drove all the way down to um, the ferry port down in the south of England. And then we got the ferry over and then we drove all the way to Charles de Gaulle, picked up Callie, my cat, and we were going to, on the way to drive back to the UK. Um, but we thought we'll we'll spend a day or two in Normandy because we hadn't been in Normandy before. And Callie, bless her, had been in a cage for all those hours. And we just thought it'd be nice for her to stretch her legs. So we got like an Airbnb in Normandy. And then we went off to find some food. And like, they don't do chips in, they don't do French fries in France. Who would have thought? Like, I was in France. I was like, you're, you're French. Just give me French fries. Just give me French fries and ketchup. It's not the most, I know it's the most, not the most healthiest of food, but it'll fill a hole and I'm hungry. They didn't do French fries. So I remember, you know, we were riding around for hours before we finally found an English chippy in Normandy. We found an English chip shop and we managed to go in. I guess I wasn't looking, for, I was looking for anything that just wasn't smothered in, in animal stuff and I couldn't find anything. So my go-to is if I'm somewhere where they really are not up with their veganism yet, I'll just say, can, can I just have a bowl of chips or French fries if I'm speaking to Americans? Um, can you just, and just ketchup, that will do. It's not healthy, but at least it's vegan. You know, as long as you're not frying the chips in lard or anything like that, which most people no longer do, then I'm good. In Normandy, they, they don't even do French fries in France. <laughs> I'm laughing because I've driven through with, well, I haven't, I'm, my husband drove through with us on holiday with the kids and I was so hungry until we got to our campsite because there was nothing. nothing. And then it's I lived so... off bread for an entire week. Oh God, that's stodge as well. Do you know what I mean? So I bet you had, a, had an upset stomach after a week after that of just eating bread. Yeah, it's, I mean, with 2009, honestly, it doesn't seem that long ago, but really it's another world away from where we are now and how mainstream it's becoming. And um, and she was doing it in 2009, and her business is called Vegan Mainstream. Oh, so fantastic. she had that foresight back in 2009. What I discovered only recently, she had that foresight back in 2009. So I think she'd be wonderful. She'd be absolutely wonderful. And she has insight as well from helping vegan entrepreneurs since 2009 build these huge brands and become successful. And uh, I think she was definitely ahead of her time in both ways. First of all, in 2009, thinking in terms of helping vegan entrepreneurs and focusing on that. But also she was ahead of her time in the sense that she was realizing that, that you know, I, I get the feeling that sometimes in the vegan world, in, in our world, even now in 2021, there's this subconscious belief that we should be just doing things for the goodness of the planet and the animals. And we shouldn't, it's almost like capitalism is the opposite of veganism, you know? And she was, a, you know, very early on, way before I figured out was like, the two things are not mutually exclusive. You could yearn to have a fantastic business, making lots of profit and doing really well and still be doing good for the planet and doing good for the animals and doing good for the humans. The two things are not mutually exclusive. Um, and, and she was back in 2009 trying to help these vegan entrepreneurs realize that it's nice to have a mission beyond making profit, but it's not 
you, you don't want to be the opposite of Wall Street. You know, Wall Street, it's all about profit. You don't want the pendulum swing suit too far the other way where, you know, you're not a charity. If you're a charity, that's different. But then you behave like a charity. You do fundraising and that or you're a not-for-profit. But if you're a business, then there's nothing wrong with wanting to make lots of profit. Because with that money, that is how you can do more good things. You just so, need to look at that guy in America. I can't remember his name. He, he lives outside of Seattle. And he took a pay cut so he could pay all of his workers from the bottom of the company all the way to the top $50,000 a year. And everyone laughed at him. He went on Fox News and they laughed at him. And they said he was like building a communist state in Seattle. <laughs> his business model is now being taught in Harvard because his business is thriving and his staff are thriving. And he said in a recent interview that when he went on Fox, there were runners and researchers on the show that were coming up to him and telling them how they couldn't afford to pay their rent, how they couldn't afford to pay their bills and they were going hungry so that they could do this job in this career that they loved. And what could they do to try change what was happening in their lives? And I just think you can still have, you're right, you can still have a fruitful business, but you don't keep everything for yourself. You make sure everyone around you exactly. makes that business happen have a little piece of the pie too and you uplift them so then they go forth and do great things as well it's it's so true and, and it needs to I and mean, like i said even in 2021 there's still this belief i just this i feel like there's a subconscious belief you know that you know if, if you're a vegan or ethical sustainable entrepreneur you should be just be doing it for the love of it and it's like no you could you could still want to be successful and make money and pay your staff, you know, really well and your contractors. And there's nothing wrong with being interested in profit and business. And, you know, the two things are not mutually exclusive. They, they, they can come together. And I think that Stephanie was, was doing that, you know, right from the outset, from 2009, she's been doing that and helping vegan entrepreneurs create very, very profitable businesses. And it's not a bad thing because that's how you grow. I think because of that, that is why we're seeing so many, I hate this term, plant-based companies, which are not even fully vegan, who are outpacing vegan entrepreneurs. Because there's still this belief that if you're a vegan entrepreneur, you're just meant to be this really nice, earthy person. And I don't need a lot of money. I just want to, I just want to do it for love. And I'm like, that's all great because I'd rather you than someone who just does it for profit. But the two things are not mutually exclusive. You can have both. I like money. I'm not afraid to say it. I like money. I like earning good money. I earned very, very good money as a ghostwriter. So there's no way I was going to move into book coaching and, and charge a pittance for it. I'm not prepared to do that. Well, no, because your skills are so valuable. Like you come from this ghostwriting, copywriting background where you have to write as another person, which is just an incredibly valuable skill and one that is very often undervalued by people as well. So to create Good. a career out of it is absolutely amazing. Thank you. Right. <laughs> you know, copyrighters have to stick together. Exactly. We do. We do. Cause we know, we know how important it is. A lot of people just think it's like a, a service, like, you know, like an, an IT thing, you know, you just, you know, you create a plugin, you just create this blog post. So you just create, it's like, no, those those words are how you show up in the world and what people what makes people want want to or not want to buy things from you. So, so it's I, really I important. Guess, I guess what's at the heart of this is what makes writing a business book 
such a powerful marketing tool, such a powerful piece of content that can push you towards leadership in which, whichever industry you are in? Um, I think it's, it's, well, there's two reasons. First of all, it sets you apart. So I do this thing, whenever I speak on stage, I do this thing where I, I get people um, to put their hands up depending on you know what they've got in their business. So I'll be like, put your hands up if you got a website for your business. And practically everybody sticks, because who doesn't have a website, you know? You're not even taken seriously now if you don't have a website and you're a business. And I say, okay, how many people have business cards, you know, about their business? And a few people might put their hands down because let's face it, business cards are getting a bit old now. But most people still put their hands up and, yeah, I've got business cards, even if they don't use them. And say, okay, um, how many of you have got social media profiles for your business? Again, most of the hands are up. And then say, okay, how many of you are authors? And I'd be lucky if one or two people put their hands up. And I'll just go, that's the differentiation. You know, when you want to, if you want to differ, if you find yourself, you're competing all the time with your competitors in terms of price, you're competing with the same demographic all the time. How to stand out from that crowd is to become an author. It's a, it's a shortcut to it. You know, if you think, of, I always say, if you think about it, what you're doing on social media is your you, there's two things you're doing on social media as a business. You're raising your visibility so more people are aware of you. And you're also wanting to raise your authority. Like anyone who does social media in 2021 as a business owner, you'll be aware that if you just put sales messages out there, it doesn't work. No one wants to hear sales message after sales message. So even any business owner by now knows that the way to win social media is to demonstrate your authority demonstrates how good you are at something. So for example, if you're a plumber, you don't bang on about you've got a 30% sale off or whatever. You don't keep going on about that. Instead, you show people how to do little plumbing jobs themselves so they don't have to call you out. But then when the big job happens, they'll call you out. That's why you have plumbers and I have huge YouTube channels because they're showing you how to do little things. You know what I mean? So people have worked out that just sales messages don't work, but showing, demonstrating your expertise and authority is how to do it. So that's what you're doing on social media, but you're doing little bits by little bits. Imagine if you can compile all of that into one book. It's just, it, it's, it's, it's exponential then. Absolutely. So that's where it comes to, that's, that's why I really do believe writing a book is just so clever and then that's why I was stumped when you when you asked me you know which business leader which vegan business leader hasn't written a book and I was like oh my god I was thinking well and they've all written a book because that's what happens that's why they're business leaders that's why they're not some obscure business owner they become a business leader and guess what it was because they wrote a book that's the thing that I call it a fire starter. It seems to ignite whatever it is that you're doing. Say, if you're doing social media, you'll find your social media goes through the roof once you become a published author. If you're doing podcasting, you'll find you get accepted onto more podcasts as a guest um, when you become a published author. You know, or if you like if, if speaking on stages is your thing, you'll find that more people are open to you speaking on their stages when you say that you're a published author. It's, it's just like, it's like a shortcut in most people's brains. They just kind of think if you've written a book, you genuinely must be an expert. I think that's the other thing as well. I think the other thing is we're now living in an information overload world. 
So I'm old enough to remember a time when, you know, I was given an assignment at school and I'd have to beg my mother to take me to the library. Then I'd go to the encyclopedia section. You weren't even allowed to take those books home. So then, you know, I'm sure maybe you remember as well. Then you had to photocopy the pages that were relevant. Then my mother would grumble because I've now photocopied 11 pages. She's like, that's one pound 10. I spent one pound 10 already. How many more photocopies do you need? That was how important information was then. Information was something you had to go somewhere for. You had to take hours searching for the right bit of information. Sometimes you had to pay for it. And then the internet turned up and then like, poof, everything just changed. And suddenly we've got information everywhere. We've got information coming out of our earlugs, you know, to the point where most people are now tired. So when they go on social media and it's just noise, like, yeah, everyone's, everyone's telling me they're great. Everyone's giving, showing me their expertise and their authority. What's the difference? So I actually think writing a book now is probably even more important than writing a book pre-internet era, because this is how people now have this almost like a shortcut in their brain. Whether you're talking about clients or customers, or whether you're talking about strategic partners that can help you raise your visibility and authority, such as podcast hosts, summit organizers, you know, people who can raise your visibility. With both sets of people, as soon as you say the word author in the head, they go, oh, proper expert. <laughs> they do I've seen people's faces when I tell people oh, I wrote this book it was a bestseller and they're like oh you do know something about this and don't you you've written a book and it became a bestseller okay it's not just somebody shouting on social media like everybody else because everyone in social media is a flipping expert on something aren't they they're always amazing so you get tired after a while it's all like well you know I, I there's another another lady she's a client of mine and what she did with her book is she was really big on um, Google PPC ads. So she's used Google ads for a number of years um, for her coaching practice. She's based in the States. And you put in, she's a life coach, you put in life coach. I, I can't I can't give you her more deals because I have an NDA in place because I wrote a book. And she's going around saying that she wrote a book. So I can't tell you any more than the fact that she's a life coach based in the States. And I can't say any more than that. But you could, if you put in life coach and the state that she lives in, her her ad comes up and, and, and all the rest of it. And she was doing really well just with that. But obviously she was competing with all these other life coaches that were in that state. So when she got her book and it became a bestseller as well, she decided to change that. And her book was all about how to pick a good life coach. Because the thing with life coaching is there's really no formal qualifications. Anyway, I can just decide today I fancy being a life coach and I can just stick an advert up and I can be a life coach, which is quite scary if you think about it. Um, So she wrote a book on, you know, how to go about picking the best life coach for yourself. So she decided once the book was out and it became a bestseller that she was going to change all of her Google PPC ads instead of her ad still came up when people put life coach this state it still came up but instead it was it was sort of like free book on how to pick your next life coach and then it was a landing page you go on that the book is free but then she charged i think four four dollars 99 cents for posting and packaging in other words she was basically covering her costs because she doesn't want some you know all these idiots want to request a free book and she's gonna be out of a lot of money mm-hmm. so you pay for posting and packaging but the book was free and she now cleans up in that state. 
Because think about it. If you if you saw, you go on Google and you put in life coach, say I put life coach Gates said, and there's like 20 entries. And I'm like, oh, they're all telling me they're flipping brilliant because of course they would. How do I differentiate? How do I know which one is the one for me? And then I see one advert that looks completely different to the others because it's saying free book or low cost book or whatever it is. You go, okay, well, first of all, your eyes are drawn to it because it's different. You click on it and it's not selling you anything. It's actually saying, look, I'm giving you something of valuable information. Again, the shortcut of a book, people instantly go, oh, there's a book on it. This, again, we have this belief that if the information is in a book, maybe it harks back to our childhood and going to libraries and realizing the information at that time was a valuable commodity. We have this shortcut in our brain that just instantly makes us think it's in a book. Therefore, this is this has been researched. It's been it's been verified. This isn't just somebody on the internet. Cause let's face it. Anybody can stick a website up and write whatever. And people do sadly stick a website up and write whatever they want to write. And it's not verified. It's not proven, you know, but there's this belief that if someone has gone to the trouble of publishing a professional book, that this information is of a higher class um, and also more believable and it's been verified and it's been proven and all those wonderful things that we want our content to be. So she now cleans up. She's just like, the other life coaches don't stand a chance with it because. Um, is there a point in your business where writing a book is the ideal point? Should it be, say, at startup stage or when you're heading into growth stage or maybe when you've hit your plateau on growth stage and you're ready to, Take Go to the next level. Yeah. Um, judging from my clients, most people are, they've kind of plateaued somewhere mm-hmm. and they're really sort of getting, you know, they go to summits and they, you know, they go to conferences and then they see people on stage and they're like, I can do that. I'm better than that. But why don't I, why, why am I not asked to speak on this? Why don't I get asked to go to that podcast? And do you know what I mean? So yeah, a certain number of my clients really do want to hit I would call that thought leader status where people actually come to you for your thoughts. And that usually again, ties in with the book. How many thought leaders do you know that aren't a published author? You can probably count them on one hand. You know, that, like I said before, I was struggling when you were saying vegan business leader. I was like a vegan business leader. They've all written books. That's why they're leaders. It's, it's difficult to think of one that hasn't written a book. Um, So yeah, I would say that stage, but really any stage, because I think it just takes more um, courage, I think. I think once you've got to a stage where your business is doing quite well and you want to go to that next level, you're quite assured at that stage. You know that you are good at what you do, but you just want to go to that next level in your business, that next level of visibility and be seen as a thought leader. Whereas if you're quite new in the business, you just may be suffering from a little bit of imposter syndrome. So for that point of view, I would say later stage is better. However, if you are somebody who's courageous, you can do it right from the beginning because you will reap the benefits. One of my clients was, he was, he was an executive coach only for six months when he approached me. Now he had been doing coaching in a corporate within a corporate role for a number of years, but his business had only been going for six, sorry, eight months. It was not six months. It was eight months. It was when he, when he approached me um, and he decided to write a book. Now I know most people would have been like eight months. 
<laughs> who does he think he is writing a book, you know, with just eight months of experience of being an executive, having owning an executive coaching practice. He didn't care about that. He's very, very, very self-assured young man. That might be something to do with it. He's very young. So <laughs> there's, a, there's a, an element of arrogance that comes with youth, which I really admire because I'm not there anymore, sadly. But um, he just wanted, if you help me, I want to, I, I, I want this book written. Guess what happened? Because he wrote that book, within two years of that book coming out, he was in his state, he's in the States. Within his state, he was in the top three highest earning executive coaches. He was charging more than 99% of the other executive coaches, despite the fact his business had only been eight months old. And when his book came out, his business was only 14 months old. That's fantastic. So it just goes to show a lot of people assume that, you know, they need to hit a level of experience before they write a book. And my, my way of gauging that, I always ask the question of all my students, I say, are you creating transformations for your client or your customer with your product or service right now? Are you doing that? If the answer is yes, then you already know more than enough to write a book. Otherwise, it's it's you, it's your imposter syndrome. And you're you're you've just you you're giving yourself rules. So you're saying, once I've been in business for five years, then I believe I'm good enough to write a book. Or once I get this qualification, then I'm good enough. But that's all you. No one else is judging you on that. You're doing that. So you've got to get out your own way a little bit and just say, am I creating transformations in people with my product or service right now? If you're doing that, then why would you not want more people to know about it so you can help even more people? So I've The got only a- people I would say no to are people who've come to me with a business idea but the, the business hasn't even started. And I just said, well, how do you know you have what it takes to get people the results that you want? So I those people... Kind of, yeah, that kind of asked the question I was about to ask was, have you ever met someone who's like, you should not write this book? Yeah, those people. I always say, I'm not saying they shouldn't, shouldn't ever write a book, but I always say they need to get their business... You need to have helped at least one person who's actually because these books are all the books I help people write are all about raising, demonstrating your expertise and authority. And we've already discussed how you do that is by showing that you know what you know. But if you're just telling people what to do, but you're not showing the results of what you've what you've achieved then why should they believe you? For example, in my book, within the introduction, I explain that, you know, I've written seven business books as a ghostwriter. Um, They've actually amassed more now, but at the time of printing, those books had made my clients a total of just over $5 million in additional business revenue. So that's from strategic partnering alliances that they made, um, from being able to raise their prices, from being able to create second and third um, income streams that the book has allowed them to do it's generated over five million dollars for them it's actually more than that now because it's it's been a while it's probably closer to six six and a half million dollars now the reason I said that is not to show off but to say look what I'm teaching works because these are the results I've gained from my clients so if you haven't gained any results for your clients or customers you're certainly not ready to write a book but if you have done that, then it doesn't matter whether you've been in business for a year, 10 years, I don't care. 
if you've got results to show for it, people who are willing to say, yeah, this person really helped me, then why wouldn't you want to help more people with your advice? Absolutely. I love that. And also your PDF that you'd sent out, the freebie, like when you were messaging me on LinkedIn, going, have you thought of writing a book? I was like, no, I haven't thought of writing a <laughs> novel. I've got, everyone's got an unwritten novel in them, not a book. Uh, but your PDF, when, when I read through it, I was like, okay, this is like mind-blowing, changing my perspective on the whole idea of writing a book and the process of writing. Like you don't give your process away in that, but you make people rethink the starting point because I was always like oh if I ever want to write a book I'll just throw some blogs together but you sort of like totally smash that theory up of the whole putting a few blogs together and that's your book I can see your face right now you're like I'm not saying you can't use the stuff in your blogs there's nothing wrong with using I actually have a student right now who's you know I think his blog's got some in the region of five or six hundred entries and some of those blog posts are fantastic so he is reusing the blog post, but there's a difference. There's a difference between reusing and repurposing. So reusing, what I mean by reusing is I've seen them on Amazon. Someone just took 50 blog posts and just shoved them together and go, oh, there's a book. I'm a published author now. And it's all like, no, you know, it's there's there's an art to it. You can't just stuff things together. There's an art to it. Does that mean you can't use blog posts? Absolutely, you can use blog posts, you can use social media posts, you can even use um, articles or podcasts that you've done or videos that you've done, you can get them transcribed. Absolutely, because you have to remember, I mean, as I said before, all we're doing in a book is what we do on social media, which is demonstrating expertise, that you know what you're talking about, that you know you can actually walk the walk, you don't just talk the talk. That's why I use the example of plumbers who actually demonstrate they know what they're doing by actually helping out with little plumbing issues so you can do it yourself. And then if you get that result, you think really warmly of that person. It's like, oh, I never thought I could do any plumbing. This is I did that recently. I changed um, the heating element of my oven when, so off I went onto YouTube. How do I change a heating element? I was able to change a heating element. And I pat myself on the back because I thought I'm not really a DIY. I'm not somebody who's very good at any of that. And the fact that I was able to change the heating element um, of my oven was like, that's a big deal for me. Uh, and you feel quite warm towards a person. So guess what? That actually, they weren't actually a electrician. They were um, a company that sells spare parts. So guess who's now on my, I'm tabbed now on my bookmarks. If I need a spare part for anything, I'll go straight onto their website and I'll buy stuff from them because they helped me out when I didn't have an oven. And I was thinking, oh my God, this is going to cost a lot of money and I'm going to have to wait for a few days before my oven works. I was able to sort it out. So you're, that's how it works. So that's all you're doing in a book. You're doing the same thing. So can you reuse the information? Yes, but you repurpose it. You have to structure the book correctly. And that's what my process goes through. It isn't just a case of, throwing a load of blog posts together because that's that's really like an anthology which works if it's fiction I mean in fiction you get anthology books and stuff like that but who wants to read an anthology you know these books are they're trying to learn something and it it would just be disjointed if you just put blog posts together so yeah there's nothing wrong with putting blog posts together but I think you just need to be aware just I always say ask yourself why you're writing a book so, um, sorry, go on. As I say, so I, I was just going to go on to something completely different. Then, um, so 
the reason I invited you on the podcast is because of your wonderful newsletter, which I love, by the way. I love that you put the oh. estimated reading time at the top because some days when I'm busy, I'm like, oh, this is only a minute. I've got a minute before this call. I can, I can read the title of this newsletter. But it's, um, you'd said you were looking to do 100 podcasts this year. Yes. Well, how, what podcast number would this be? This is 65, I believe. So I'm getting there, although I have a funny feeling with it just racing towards Christmas now, uh, I wonder I may not hit a hundred. But I mean, I when I when I gave myself this challenge back in April, I believe, or end of April, I wanted to give myself something that would stretch me, so that even if I didn't get it, I still did more than I would have if I gave myself a very doable. Say I said fifty, that was so doable. It was it was a little too doable. You want to do things that there's a chance that you won't be able to accomplish but then even if you don't accomplish it you can look back and say but I accomplished a lot more than I would have if I didn't have that challenge so yeah but again again I don't think I would have got this many if it weren't the fact that I was an author so again it's it's working for me from that point of view I gave my first talk in front of several hundred people a few weeks ago in Birmingham and that was again I mean, in, in all fairness, I had no right to be on that stage. <laughs> I really, that's me. I'm allowed to say that because it's me. But I really didn't because everybody else was very experienced speakers. You know, they're already carved out this sort of second career to their business as a speaker. I really had no business being there. I've never spoken in front of, you know, I've never stood up and spoken in front of anybody. I mean, I'm sure I've done it drunkenly at weddings and stuff like that. Do you know what I mean? But I don't think that counts. I don't think we can say drunkenly toasting the bride and groom is a speech in front of, you know, I can't, I don't count that. But I've never actually spoken in front of people before. And then, you know, over the pandemic, I have been asked to do little masterclasses here and there, but online on Zoom, which is a very different thing. And then suddenly I was asked by, um, well, he's the UK's number one motivational business speaker, Brad Burton. He asked me to, because um, so I'm part of his network, and then he heard me do a little masterclass in one of his networks. Um, and then I, I sort of, um, you know, asked him very nicely if he would if he would write the forward to my book. And he said, yes, he wrote the forward to my book. And then next thing I know, he said, right, I want you to speak on stage at the Business Networking Show in September. And I was like, what? <laughs> I've never given a speech before in my life. And it's half an hour as well. It was just like a five or 10 minute slot, but it was a half an hour slot. That's amazing. And that would know, I'm telling you now, it just wouldn't have happened. If, if, if I wasn't an author, that wouldn't have happened. And now I've now got a coach who is, her job is to look for speaking gigs for me. So she goes off and finds speaking gigs for me because I don't have the time because I'm helping my students publish their books. Um, but it looks like I'm now going to have this second career as a motivational speaker. Fantastic. If you are in Which, Birmingham. Uh, I didn't even think of. It didn't even dawn on me when I wrote the book that, that, you know, that could. But that's the other thing. You know, once you write a book, these doors open to you that you didn't even realize they were there. I, it wasn't even on my radar. It wasn't on my radar to be. I knew that I had to speak and do masterclasses and workshops because again we go back to the whole the way to do marketing in 2021 is no longer what well, hasn't been for over 30 years you can't do the whole buy my stuff it just doesn't work it's all about demonstrating your expertise so I knew I had to do that 
actually getting up on stage and not talking about writing a book and actually being a motivational speaker was something that wasn't even on my radar. But now it looks like it's going to be like a sort of like my side hustle almost. Um, So, yeah, a book can open up doors that you didn't even realize were shut or were even there. That's fantastic. I love that. Thank you so much for your time today. I'm just going to wrap this up here. And I just want to take a moment to thank Natalie for sharing her time and so much of her energy with me on the podcast conversation this week. I really enjoyed having a brew and a chat with her. And you can go and check out her membership and have a chat with her about maybe writing your own business book. She has certainly inspired me. The links to all her, to her business and to that online coaching is available in the show notes. Now, um, if you're thinking about including a book in your strategy for next year for your content, I have a content strategy checklist that you can download. Link for that is also in the show notes. And please do sign up to the Thursday Brew, which is the newsletter that goes along with this podcast. Every week I send out um, an essay that's related to one of the, to the podcast episode of the week. And every other week you get some more interesting thoughts and viewpoints from across the content landscape, if that's the right way to call it. But thank you for listening. Please do let me know what you thought of this episode and if you have been inspired to write a book as a result of Natalie, please let me know. I will go buy a copy and I will see you in the next episode.